and welcome to Power Problems, a podcast from the Cato Institute, where we offer a skeptical take on U.S. foreign policy and discuss some of today's big questions in international security with guests from across the political spectrum. I'm Emma Ashford. And I'm Trevor Thrall. For political scientists, the Trump administration has stirred up a bunch of topics that we had thought were largely defunct, or at least relegated to the developing world. Nationalism, ethnic strife, the clash of civilizations, these have all re-emerged into the discourse on US foreign policy and on US politics. And so Trump himself has embraced some of these issues, but in a a fairly instinctive way. Um, But his advisors, in contrast, have often been trying to take classic academic texts on these issues and superimpose them onto Trump's worldview in a more systematic way. So we've got Steve Bannon embracing Huntington's clash of civilizations. We've got the State Department head of policy planning, Chiron Skinner, who said recently that China would be America's first non-Caucasian great power competitor. Um, So this is all uh, sort of a blast from the past. And and joining us today to discuss these questions, we'll talk about nationalism and ethnic identity in U.S. foreign policy, we have Hilda Restad. Hilda is an associate professor at Bjorkness College in Oslo in Norway, and she's a specialist in American exceptionalism and how it impacts foreign policy. So Hilda, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you. I'm so glad to be here. So um, we usually tend to start with some sort of news of the day, but since this episode is part of our series recorded during the 2019 American Political Science Association conference, um, we're actually going to skip the news of the day and talk instead about a bigger picture issue. Um, So it's pretty easy in the Trump administration to get bogged down in the crazy news of the day. But what I want to ask you, Hilda, and what we've asked some of our other guests in this series, is where you think the biggest geopolitical risk is coming from in the next couple of years. Um, what should we be worried about or not as we move into the 2020s? It's it's so funny that you ask that because I always ask that of my students when I teach uh, <laughs> global security. But I think the answer to your question depends on who we are. Who are the we that are supposed to be worried, right? Um, because I would, the, the sort of conventional answer to that is, could have been a few years ago, the rise of China and how the U.S. may or may not overreact to that. Or uh, more recently, I think, the uh, threat from climate change and the implications uh, from that. But right now, which is sort of on topic for today's podcast, what I am most worried about, if the we that we're talking about is um, liberal democracies, is the rise of right-wing radicalism uh, and the assault on liberal values, ideals, institutions, uh, a lot of which are coming from uh, Russia. And currently supported by the president of the United States, which makes it a very turbulent and perilous time. Yeah, so perhaps we should have probably expected this answer from you, right? Um, And this is something that's been popping up a lot in the presidential campaign, you know, so we see a lot of Democratic contenders starting to talk about you know, an authoritarian axis aligned against the, the liberal West. Um, I'm always a little skeptical about how much of it is is a coordinated thing, though, or whether it's just that some authoritarian states have had some success with these tactics. Uh, yes, yes. And also, we, we can also see from various sort of radical right-wing parties in Europe that they, they can have real trouble cooperating and, and you know, getting their ducks in a row. Um but the I think the general sort of transnational movement of ideas that is a for, coming from various sectors and and levels, whether it's state or or sub state level, it, there's a sort of assault on 
liberal values and institutions, which I think, whether or not it's very coordinated or not, it's coming together right now to present, I think, a real threat. Yeah, and it's and it's really interesting watching liberal democracies figure out how to respond because you know as we just sort of heard you guys saying it's it the first question is where was the on button like what's causing this because if you're going to try to stop it you f- might need to know that um you know is it on purpose or is it just sort of happening is it going to peter out but then who's responsible for fixing it like and then after you figured out oh maybe we need to do something um which i don't think the us has decided yet actually still debating how much that it should be part of us foreign policy for sure uh, not just trump but but even the democrats i think um th- what the heck would you do to to do anything about it if you were going to try to i don't think we have a real strategy there so you know i think you know the interesting thing about that risk is it's scary because it, it's it's not even like climate change where you at least theoretically know some things you could do to stop it. I'm not sure what we would do to stop these sort of rising authoritarian forces. I think number one, don't elect one as your president. Ooh. Words to live by. Okay. Well, with that, then let's move on to our main topic of the day, which is which is very much related. Um, and so um, I think we should start with the question of nationalism because we've got Donald Trump who says, you know, I'm I'm a nationalist. I'm proud of this, and and he's kind of right that that language is something we didn't see politicians use a lot before, and it's not really something we talk about in the context of the United States a lot because there's this sort of idea myth, whatever you want to call it, that the United States doesn't really have nationalism because it doesn't really have an an ethnic or national identity in that way. Um, So let's start by giving our listeners a little bit of context on that. Um, How does nationalism fit into the American picture? Well, it's when I went to grad school at the University of Virginia, um, I took all these classes in American politics, and I was taught, and this was early 2000s, mid-2000s, and I was taught that uh, in the United States, the the way to think about American nationalism is to not use the word nationalism uh, and instead talk about the liberal tradition or the American creed or American exceptionalism. So no matter how you want to define it, it is a civic kind of definition of, of nation, so that anyone within the the borders of the United States are part of um, an, a project that's based on ideas and ideals. Uh, and then, you know, there's a lot of discussion about exactly what those ideas and ideals are. But we it's a little bit like uh, pornography. We know it when we see it. We, we know what the American creed is supposed to be. Um, that was a reference to Justice Potter Stewart, I think. Um, the pornography reference, not the other thing. Um, this podcast is already going off the rails. <laughs> so the the point was that it was all about American political thought and the founders and this tradition, the liberal tradition that we have been or Americans have been bringing forth and fought over and refought over. And, and the way to understand American history and political development is as a progressive history um, in terms of history moving for- forward and the this, this American project constantly uh, refining itself and becoming better, becoming more true to these ideals and ideas that it was founded on. Uh, and that's how to understand American history. So yes, there were these other things also in the American project founded on slavery, all these things. But the real American identity was that that was based on these liberal ideals, and that was the tradition that kept winning out. Yeah, and so the one of the the interesting ideas that 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 really sort of come out comes out of that is the idea that you don't necessarily have to be 
born an American or you don't have to look a certain way, you don't have to culturally do certain things, you can still be an American as long as you subscribe to those values and ideals. Um, that differs from much of Europe and, and frankly, much of the rest of the world. Yeah, you can't move necessarily to you know, Thailand and, and feel Thai the way you theoretically throughout history have been able to move to the United States and feel American. Right. And that taps into the idea of exceptionalism, which is his own sort of debate. But part of the sort of argument for those who wanted to argue that the United States was somehow exceptional or unique was that, well, look, this is a quite when the U.S. was founded on these ideals, this was very different. And it is still is very different from a lot of other countries in the world. Although I would use I used to say, like you said, with your example with Thailand, also with Norway, it used to be that you couldn't really just move to Norway and be Norwegian. But that is changing now in Europe because European countries are also becoming much more uh, multicultural and, and multi-ethnic. And so by necessity, maybe have to become more more civic in their definition of their, their nationalities. But yes, exactly. So the United States was different and different in the sense of thought of as being better than other countries because it had this enlightened view of nationhood. Yeah. So this is, as you say, this is kind of the American exceptionalism idea, the idea that America is somewhat different. And so that's, I think, where we come to foreign policy in this, right? Because a lot of people have talked about how American exceptionalism has sort of driven or shaped U.S. foreign policy. Um, and so I guess what I'd like to talk about a little is how the foreign policy component fits into this, because it's pretty easy to look at, say, the Trump administration and look at their stance on immigration and stuff like that and see exactly how that mapping uh, of nationalism, civic or ethnic, works out. In foreign policy, it's a little more complex. Um, it sort of seems like um, some of America's liberal international traditions would fit pretty well with civic nationalism, but sometimes those have also been pretty imperialist or pretty racist, so then they don't necessarily fit the mold. Um, it doesn't seem to me like there's a really clear mapping of nationalism to foreign policy viewpoints. Would that be correct? Um, well, it depends on your perspective, because I think um, it's a little bit easier if we look at U.S. foreign policy after World War II, because if you go before World War II, I think um, lots of great scholars have done, like Michael Hunt, have shown how ideas of race actually have had a huge impact on, on U.S. foreign policy. So I think that the, eight, the 19th century and, and up to World War II, that's that's an area where you can discuss ethnic nationalism and, and U.S. foreign policy. But after World War II, I think you can make the case that the idea was that the the way the U.S. was going to lead, I'm using air quotes, lead the free world um, was sort of leading by example. So the American creed was going to become the global creed. So the United States was going to lead the liberal international order, which is its own huge debate right now. Um and liberal meant both domestically and internationally. So there, I think you could make the argument that there was an attempt to sort of map on sort of American civic nationalism onto its its foreign policy commitments to this so-called liberal international order. But of course, with varying success and, and various sincerity, and really, I think the, the strongest sort of era for this was the 90s. Uh, when the way that the end of the Cold War was interpreted in the United States sort of vindicated this idea that we, in the American narrative, we won the Cold War because of our ideals and, and our institutions, and we have the best system. 
And now we're going to help the rest of the world become more like the United States because we have figured out the end of ideological history. And it is us. And it is us. But but as the old guy here who who lived through some of the Cold War, unlike my two colleagues here, <laughs> um, you know, American exceptionalism has another sort of dimension to it, which is uh, not only exceptional as in sort of unique, but exceptional as in better, more important than. And so in addition to the um, sort of um, uh, what you call the um, the good side, if you will, of of imposing or helping shape liberal international order, there was the exploiting liberal international Absolutely. order part of American exceptionalism. Absolutely. And so to me, you know, in addition to needing probably to go back and talk about race um, from the founding through Trump, because I think that's always been part of American nationalism that got whitewashed, uh, no pun intended, from all the history books for 200 years. Um, and and I think is, is how you can have a Trump today. I mean, you, if you just thought the liberal tradition was the only thing happening in America for 200 years, Trump would be like a Martian who landed here, but he's not an accident. So I think there's that, but then I think there's also, Trump is also not unique in wanting to put America first because that's always been, I mean, the number of regime change operations we instituted during the Cold War for just utterly pointless, selfish reasons, economic and otherwise, um, you know, it wasn't all about American exceptionalism. This is very true. And it's really, actually, it's, I find having worked so much in American exceptionalism and used foreign policy, it is so challenging to talk about because it's not always obvious when I'm trying to re relate a narrative versus what I'm saying was actually was true. So I was trying to relate the narrative. Absolutely. Uh, and the, narr the, the narrative is, does not always map onto reality. Um, but I think the American sort of self-conception was, uh, well, you know, at least we're, we're better than everyone else because we're trying to do the right thing even if we fail and even if we've done some bad things. Um, but at least we're not the Soviet Union. At least we're not Nazi Germany. Well, I mean, the bar has been pretty low. But um, but I think in the 90s, you, showed this, you saw this culmination of this idea that, look, everything we told the world about ourselves was true. The Soviet Union failed. Everything has failed except liberal democracy and capitalism and free market capitalism and globalization. And now we're really going to reform the world in our image. Um, and that, I think that talking about competing traditions, the competing tradition to or idea or solution or theory of international politics to the end of history and American exceptionalism was clash of civilizations, right? That all of a sudden felt, so if end of history felt vindicated by the end of the Cold War, clash of civilizations felt vindicated by 9-11 uh, and has really dominated uh, the discourse on on U.S. foreign policy, I think, since then, but not necessarily in the way it's doing now. There was the George W. Bush edition, and now there's the Trump edition, and they're not necessarily the same ones. I mean, what I find kind of fascinating about this is it really is sort of a rhetoric versus reality thing, because, I mean, so these the Huntingtonian ideas, the clash of civilizations, you're right, it has been shaping U.S. foreign policy for the last 15, 20 years or, or longer. Um, but we have sort of just we've been pretending that it doesn't, right? So like like Trevor said, during the Cold War, we often did that. But also in the post-Cold War period, we've continued to say that it's not. So the war on terror isn't about Islam. It's it's not a cultural thing. It's not civilizational. Um, even as we took a lot of actions, both domestically and in foreign policy, that would somewhat put the lie to that. It seems like where Trump is making a difference today is basically that he's just coming out and saying it um, rather than the, that he's actually changing policies in any substantive way. 
Yeah. And I think during the, those of us that were critical of the war on terror, uh, maybe would have said at the time that it doesn't matter if they're saying it or not, they're they're acting on these biases. But I guess now in the Trump era, maybe we see that actually maybe it does matter a little bit if you say things out loud because it makes it so much more worse. But I'm, what's really interesting to me is that the binding um, connection here between the George W. Bush era and, and Trump uh, and Clash of Civilizations is John Bolton. Who managed to make his way into both administrations, um, and uh, I think is having an, an important role to play, and is one of the most, I think, prominent Islamophobes in the administration. Yeah. So I mean, so I think it's it's not even just Bolton. There's a number of people. But let's take a step back for a second and let's um, pull apart clash of civilizations because we are all talking about it here as if everybody knows exactly what it is and also why we're being so critical of it. So let's take a couple of seconds and talk about what did Huntington argue? What is sort of the Trump administration saying that's similar? Um, and why do political scientists love um, taking down Huntington? <laughs> why do we love to hate Huntington? Samuel Huntington wrote an article in 1993 uh, where he argued that there had been three main eras so far in world history. Um, how he categorized sort of the the great clashes of world politics. First, there were the wars were uh, fought by and over royal royal families and princes in the in the Middle Ages. Then wars were fought over and uh, between empires and nation states. And then in the Cold War, wars were fought over and along ideological lines. So, you know, the big ideological battle of the Cold War, which then Francis Fukuyama said had been solved by the uh, United States and the end of ideological history. Uh, and he predicted that the next era of world historic clashes would be uh, not along ideological lines, but along cultural or civilizational lines. And then he categorized civilizations in a way that was very much open to a lot of academic criticism because it was very sloppy. And um, But his main focus, he talked about all the different civilizations, but his main focus was he thought that the, the biggest conflict would be between the Western civilization, which is Christian, and Islam. Um, and he wrote that Islam has bloody borders, uh, and it also has bloody innards, uh, as he wrote in his book three years later. And it's not a problem. He pointed specifically out, it's not a problem. It's not the fact that it's just a problem between the West and extremism, uh, uh, Islamist terrorism or extremism. It's a problem between the West and Islam, the religion. Which um, maybe is part of the reason why he was he was very influential because it was a very um, some sometimes if you say something that feels true, it immediately hits a chord with people and it spreads like wildfire. And I think that was part of the reason it became so popular. But it was also very easy to criticize um, from an academic point of view. But then, with, like I said earlier, with nine eleven, it felt doubly true that there was a problem. Uh, between Islam uh, and the West. And, but I think when you say that it's, well, part of the reason this is so problematic is because you're not, you're not separating between Islam, the religion, and various movements within, right? And this is also uh, the reason I, I brought up John Bolton earlier um, is because this is the tendency that I see in the Bush administration is that there is no attempt to separate between, you know, 1.6 billion people who are Muslims and um, 
various extremist movements that can be, you know, coded as national security threats to the U.S. And in fact, Trump's first, uh, Bolton is now his second national security advisor, but his first one was Michael Flynn, who wrote on Twitter, fear of Muslims, Muslims in general, is rational. Yeah, it's I don't a, know how to follow up with that. How do you like? What is that? No. Um, so, so you know, we talk about sort of the domestic component of nationalism here. Maybe the Trump administration is moving towards a more ethnic component of nationalism in the United States, but the the foreign policy part of it is a big part of it because you, if you believe that your foreign policy is directed against an ethnic or religious group, then that undermines the rationale for the civic nationalism. Right? It means that there is a group of people somewhere in the world that can, cannot come to America and become Americans. Presumably, Ab- absolutely, these things really go together. And Trump started his cam- his his campaign was started out by focusing on the uh, danger posed to the United States by Muslims in general and by immigrants coming from brown countries. I it's yeah this is a hard book to discuss but it, there's like third rails everywhere here but the the I, because I I I also disagree on a sort of just a. Um, uh, empirical level with Huntington's claims. I, I don't want to get into the, was Huntington an ultra racist at the end of his life uh, argument? Because he probably was. Like the next book is even worse. Um, who we are is like off the deep end as far as I'm concerned. And for someone who spent his life as a realist thinker, I, it's sort of shocking where he got to at the end there. But but I, I, as we dunk on him, I'd like to sort of ask you guys what you think is worth salvaging, because I don't think it's ridiculous to imagine that post-Cold War, there is going to be a different sort of animating force for global conflict, whether it's climate or something else. And I'm, I'm very fond of Martha Finnemore's wonderful book, The Purpose of Intervention, which sort of traces how the sort of the norms and like what you think an intervention is justified by and what's the purpose of it has changed pretty radically over time. And frankly, if you read the book, it you wouldn't be shocked to ha- have read a chapter in her book at the end that said, well, you know, religious and, and civilizational sort of clashy stuff is like the new thing that states think is a reason to go whack people. And if, and if you then read the history of the war on terror, you'd be like, well, okay, I guess America is waging war on all brown Muslim countries. I guess Huntington was correct, right? I'm not saying he was right about everything, like, because there's a lot of civilizations not fighting and so on. But, but are there things that we should maybe not dunk on too fast? Oh, I think, okay, I see what you're saying. You're, uh, the difference is between whether, I guess we were discussing whether or not this should be U.S. foreign policy versus just the predictive value. And and it, it became a little bit of a self-fulfilling prophecy in, in that sense. So that I agree with you there, um, which is the danger of public engagement as a scholar, because be careful what you say can because people can start following your advice. Um, so yes, that I, I gave you the point. Um, I grant you the point. I, I guess we're discussing sort of more the more the 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 normative aspect of it, whether this should be how you organize U.S. foreign policy, um, or whether it will uh, actually turn back on yourself and and start to wither away or chip away at what was supposed to be the United States purpose and definition, right? Yeah. So, I mean, so if we move away, I guess, from sort of the war on terror part of it, um, what I find interesting is that the Trump administration seems to be trying to apply the, the clash of civilizations narrative um, more broadly, the way the way Huntington actually does in the book, right? So not just this crude idea that maybe it's not a, maybe it's not just extremists, maybe it's all Muslims. So it's not it's not that they're actually trying to take this and apply it to like China. They're they're trying to say, well, um, you know, China is a um, 
Asian civilization and therefore they're alien to us and we can't um, cooperate with them. So we're going to have a competition, a great power competition with them. Um, and I find that really problematic. Um, and that's so not something that I think is good from Huntington, but again, I find it very problematic, the idea that it's these civilizational blocks that drive great power competition. Um, particularly, I think if you look back at the Cold War, the idea that Russia was civilizationally the same as the United States, and so that wasn't but civilizations, I, I think a lot of these concepts are just so fuzzy that we're grasping at straws. And it becomes self-fulfilling prophecies. If you uh, view another power as alien to yourself, your ideals, your way of life, then how could you possibly find any common ground and why should you cooperate? Oh, absolutely. But that's the history of national security politics in the United States since World War II, which is- Which hawks, makes this very troubling. Hawks need an enemy to demonize, to justify budgets and you know for their friends in the defense industry who need money and so on. So they go ahead and they use whatever arguments are to hand. And during the Cold War, you didn't need to use civilization because it was easier just to say they were communists and they're really big and scary. And when you're looking at China today, you can say, well, they're getting really big and scary. Oh, well, but but there's a good argument. You know what? They're also not Western civilization. That's, you know, there's a book that says that's terrible. I mean, I don't even know that people believe it. It's just like you said, I mean, it becomes self-fulfilling because people say it a lot and then we act more hawkish and then that pisses China off and then whoops, there you go. Well, there can be a confluence of factors. There can be cynical people who use it and then there can be people who believe it. Uh, and then there's general the general public who hear it. Absolutely. Uh, and, and after a generation, no yeah. one remembers it was a, a lie for you know strategic purposes to begin with. The sort of the blowback kind of problem, which relates to the the dangers of these kinds of um, simplistic theories, because if they are um, if they're very easy to adopt for a sort of non you know necessarily sophisticated public when it comes to foreign policy or ideologies or theories then that is, uh, it can have a sort of a, a big impact in a very negative and dangerous way. So perhaps then the, the question, I guess, is, is, is Trump a Huntingtonian? Is this what is shaping his administration's foreign policy? Or is it, is it something else? Well, it, it, this is the, <laughs> I get in trouble when I say this, but the, I always come back, the, the question with the Trump administration for me, it, it always comes back to this. Are they stupid or evil? It's really hard to know. Um, I think there's an element of both. There's there are some there are some very smart doctrinaire ideologue, ideologues that are trying to push their agenda, and then there are some maybe more random people who are not so sophisticated, maybe in their thinking. How whatever however this is coming about, I think the for me the way to think about the Trump administration and foreign policy that makes sense to me that connects foreign to domestic policy is to view him as part of this international right wing movement. Um, and that maps onto a lot of things that we're seeing. Um, the nationalism, the anti-liberal uh, international uh, institutions, the Islamophobia, um, the anti-Semitism, and this weird fondness for authoritarian regimes. What do you guys think? I think that's a, a, a tidy like bow to wrap around those things. That's not a terrible framework, I don't think. And it doesn't matter to me whether Trump believes it or not because they are acting on it. The results are there and we have to deal with the consequences. I guess this brings us to the sort of the, the question is, should we even be trying as political scientists to actually map uh, a coherent logical policy onto the Trump administration? Because I, I am increasingly unsure that that's worth even trying to do. 
Well, we, we, John and, and Chris and I did spend a whole chapter on, on that in a book that's coming out soon that, that we wrote about this very Slug topic. Uh, fuel to the fire, uh, everyone. Um, but, you know, I think, Emma, your point is a really good one. We tried really hard. And the best you can do is kind of a, a fuzzy logic, you know, where you're like, well, these are instincts, these are tendencies, but it's nothing that would elevate to the level of a Trump doctrine where you're like, oh, he has a really coherent view of the world and how it works and, you know, how civilizations fit together. I mean, I think he's mostly just a nationalist and a racist and that's kind of, on a, and he has this weird ADD. So, you know. But I think that's where you find the the one part, the part of Trump that is consistent is on, on these issues, is the nationalism, the, the ethno-nationalism. And this is what binds, this is what makes America, what is going to make America great again is what is what is going to put America first in foreign policy, which is the focus on the eth the ethno-nationalism. Because it's not just putting America first in foreign policy. It's not just any America, right? It's an ethnic definition of the United States. It's keeping the Muslims out. It's kicking uh, the brown people out. Um, and, and so I... This is where it all sort of comes together for me. Um, I so I for me I, there is actually a, a framework for under, does it, for understanding Trump, the the Trump administration. Whether or not he himself has sophisticated conversations about it uh, in the back room, it doesn't matter because this is what he's acting on, and these are the the consequences out there in the world that the rest of the world has to deal with. You know, I, I had a great conversation with um, Heather Hurlbert for the podcast about three, four episodes back. If you haven't listened to it, go and listen to it. But one of the, the questions that she posed that I found absolutely fascinating is um, the, the idea that who is foreign policy for? Who, who is the national interest serving has come back to the surface in the Trump administration. Um, and she wasn't just saying it looking at uh, Donald Trump and Republicans. She was saying that the Democratic Party is increasingly asking this question too. You know, which constituencies is foreign policy serving? And it's not something necessarily new in foreign policy, but it is something that seems to be much more shaping the debate on both sides of the aisle now than it used to be. Um, and again, really seems to, if we come back to the start of our discussion, really seems to move us away from this notion of civic nationalism, from this notion of a, a unified liberal American foreign policy in any real sense of the word. And this is something where you could see people on both sides uh, being concerned with this and, and for good reason. So Michael Anton, who worked for the Trump administration, who is now at Hillsdale College, uh, who wrote that famous Flight 93 essay before the election in 2016, um, has has written about what he calls the Trump doctrine. And one of the things he he says is that it's about taking back foreign policy from the elites and doing it on behalf of the people. But as with all nationalist uh, rhetoric, you have to ask who are the people. And that's maybe where the left and the right would define them differently. And uh, perhaps who are the elites when he's writing in the Claremont Review of Books from his position at Hillsdale College? I don't know if you've heard, Emma, but right-wing people can't be elites. Well, uh, that's another third rail we're not going to touch. Um, but uh, before we wrap up here, I want I want to actually take us in a totally different direction for a couple of minutes, um, because um, most of our guests on the podcasts are Americans, or they work at American universities, they live work here in the states, um, and and you don't. You you live in your home country in Norway. Um, you write on U.S. foreign policy, but from very much from the other side of the pond. And so, I really just wanted to ask you about the European view of the Trump administration, how things are going in U.S. foreign policy lately. Um, how is that being viewed? I, I don't think I can answer on behalf of Europe, the continent. 
Um, but I can, um, in from sort of the 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 northern western part of Europe, uh, it seems like the approach was for a while sort of just pretend it's not happening, sort of quiet desperation, just work the contacts, work from minister to minister level, you know, hope that Jim Mattis never quits and just ride it out. Um, and that, I don't know anymore um, if, obviously, Jim Mattis isn't in the in the Pentagon any longer. So for those of us like Norway who really depend on on NATO and, and, and the U.S. Um, de- defense commitment to Europe, I'm... There's not a lot of public discussion of this, but I think there's panic under the surface. Interesting. You mean among policymakers? Um... Yeah. Because what? How can you? For just to talk about the country, I do know. For countries like Norway, there's we only have NATO and the U.S. is our only sort of lifeline. Uh, and if you don't know that you can trust the United States anymore, that is truly a brave new world that we haven't contemplated since 1949 when we were a founding member of NATO. And we do border on Russia. Um, and so there was what you were hearing from officials was that, you know, in 2016 and 2017, don't worry, we have the contacts in the Pentagon and the State Department. You know, the bureaucracies are working together. There's stability under their calm, sort of deeper, calm waters, right? But I don't know um, if you can honestly think that anymore when you don't know who, what, what is, you know, you, you don't know who is the U.S. that you're supposed to def- depend on. Is it is it the White House or is it the bureaucracies of the Pentagon and the State Department, which are being decimated and sort of ideologically purged? What, what is there a U.S. to depend on right now? And so, I mean, you know, as somebody who has argued for the U.S. to perhaps commit less to NATO, admittedly Thanks, not, in the, not in the strange way that the Trump administration is doing it, but, you know, I've, I've argued that and so have many of my colleagues. Is this, I guess, is this pushing policymakers, in your view, towards trying to take sort of mitigating steps that they can take? Um, because it sort of seems like from, from this side of the Atlantic, looking back at Europe, you know, you look at Germany and some other countries, and um, maybe there's this realization that they can't depend on the U.S. anymore, but they're not actually doing anything about it. Um, And so I I recognize maybe that's a little different for a country like Norway that's smaller, but it doesn't really seem like this is actually prompting any action. Well, I guess we don't know the long-term effects, what this might cause down the line. Um, I think in in the Nordic countries, it sort of revitalized the age-old, ever-present debate about Nordic security cooperation. Which is difficult because it's across. There are different. There are countries that are in the EU that are not in the EU. They're in NATO that are not in NATO. That are Finland that are not Finland. So it's really mm-hmm. difficult. Um, but I, yeah, I think it has created. It has re revived a lot of debates that when you, if you study uh, your, you know, um, transatlantic security discourse after World War II, is very familiar. Can these countries cooperate without the U.S. and I guess we might be discovering the answer to that. Lovely. Another natural experiment we're running in the Trump administration. I I look forward to seeing how it turns out. 
So on that note, um, I guess we will wrap up because we're out of time. Um, thank you, Hilda, for joining us, uh, for, for coming here during the APSA conference. Thanks to our producer, Cecil Sherman, and to everybody at home for listening. Um, if you want to continue the conversation on social media, our Twitter handle is at Power Problems. And if you like the show, please do leave us a good review on iTunes or wherever else you find your podcasts. So see you all next time. 